So today, as in many days, we often get confused for whom we belong and, and whose we are in this world. In today's story, as he has shared in the story that we have read in Exodus, we sometimes in our own lives forget who and whose we are. And today I want to talk about what that, how that matters, but more so how we can forget such things. It's been said by some over the last three or four years that we are living in liminal space or in a liminal time. I've heard sermons and I've read multiple articles that say as much, and I must agree with those who, who offer that we live in between times. The word liminal means threshold. It means in between. And liminal spaces are never comfortable. Liminal spaces are, they make us uneasy. They're not easy places to be. And when we live in between what used to be and what will be, it feels like or it can feel like you're suspended in air. Liminal space comes with this sense of not knowing whether you're rising or falling, going forward or falling backwards. You might say that we have lived in a liminal season since March, when the potential of a pandemic became a daily reality for us. But it's one more addition to the liminality of many other things that we have in front of us. And I feel like I can say with confidence that our former way of lives and life together is either being strained or all out changed. It's been a disorienting and a disconcerting few years, hasn't it? Continues to be so. So many things seem to be dangling out there in front of us. We want to know when we can safely remove these masks and draw closer to one another. We want to know if we'll ever find a way in this diverse world to live in peace, to live united, without separating because of differences. We wonder, what's it going to mean to be the church? Heck, what's it going to mean to be United Methodist in the next months and the years ahead? There's an ancient story about three trees. And each of these trees in the story represent our course in life. Well, the first tree is said to be the lote. And the story tells us that this is a tree of life. It's the original tree. It's behind us as in our past. And this tree that's back here represents our history and everything that we have experienced. And if you have ever seen a lote tree, they're rather beautiful. They're stout. They have a short trunk. It's a wide trunk, a strong root system. The tree is flush and wide. And as a result, when you look at a lote tree, it looks very grounded. It looks immovable, like our past. It's firmly rooted. The second tree is called the Fusang. You've never seen a Fusang tree because, well, it's a mythical tree. It doesn't exist. It lies ahead of us, the story says. It is our future. It's out there. I did a Google search of Fusang tree because I was curious, and the depictions are wide and they're varied and they're quite creative. And that's because it doesn't exist and therefore, like our future, it's made of hopes and dreams and expectations shaped by our lives. It's defined by all those things. 
So it's creative looking and it's out there. But the third tree is a twisted pine. Now you've seen twisted pines. You've seen them as bonsai trees. A twisted pine is one of those trees that looks like a spiral. It looks, they can be reduced to a bush in your front yards. And sometimes you see them growing in the wild even. And they grow up just like any other tree. But they tend to be able to grow in all circumstances, all realities. Some of them jut out of massive rocks on mountainsides. And they jut out at a 90 degree angle actually. And it looks like gravity has, has gone a whole different direction where those twisted pines live. And they grow where you would th think that even a blade of grass could make root. And they looked, in these situations, precarious and stressed. But some of them grow in plush forest. They're full and tall and green, a deep green from top to bottom. And when you look at the pictures of a twisted pine in this circumstance, you can almost smell the cedar smell that comes off of them, or the pine smell. Now the story says that this tree represents the now. And the images of it very much express the realities that we can know, full of vulnerability and bounty all at once. And the story says that the tree is always right here beside us in the presence, in all of its lavish and uncertain beauty. The twisted pine proverb reminds me of what liminal space looks and feels like. We all know what it's like when things hang in the balance. We know what it's like to wait for the medical results or to sit in surgery waiting rooms. We know what it's like to know what our job future looks like. We know what it's like right now for pandemics and conflicts and injustice and wars and elections to be beyond us. Indeed, liminal space. It's not often a kind space to our sense of peace and comfort. And these in-between times are full of tension. And they tend to want us to either look back at what used to be, longing for those days where we knew at least how things are with some certainty. Even if things were not good, we knew how things would be. Or they lead us to look out towards the future, hoping for a better day, never satisfied with the moment, even if most of the time that future, well, we can't always agree what that future should look like, right? Looking back and looking forward, worthwhile endeavors, we must do so. But only, only if we also choose to live in the twisted pine realities of now, this day. Jesus once said something very similar in Matthew's gospel. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you worrying add a single hour to your span of life? I need to say to you, Jesus, I hear you, but have you seen how things can go these days? We're a little anxious at times. I am there with you. So Christ, I hope you'll understand how we can feel some days. Israel, 
is a lot like us, and we are a lot like Israel, I believe. They have been residing in a liminal space for some time, and you may recall that they're now on the other side of, of being freed from life of bondage in Egypt. They had lived under the oppression of Pharaoh for generations, and now in their new freedom, everything has changed. Now in this freedom, they realize that freedom is never going to be easy. It's going to be hard for them and the world to reconcile their new identity. God has thrust them into a moment when they must learn a whole new way of seeing themselves and figuring out how to live together. They will have to overcome the identity that Egypt wanted them to have and now adopt this new identity as children of God. And just before this story, they received ten commandments that were to show them how they are to belong to God and one another. And they have been given a few instructions on how to live together. Now Moses, it seems, has gone up for more instructions. He's gone back to that mountain. I suppose that life is far more complicated than ten rules can cover, right? And then they're content. They're content and they're waiting for a while. So at the base of this mountain, the people wait. And they wait some more. And they wait some more. And they wait a little longer. But now it's been almost six weeks. How much longer should they wait? They must have begun to think that God had either abandoned them, that Moses was dead on the side of that mountain. Who could last 40 days in, in that kind of world? Or maybe they thought both. So assuming the worst, they get anxious and they get impatient. Egypt is behind them. They're in hostile lands in the moment. In the promised land out there, that's nowhere in sight yet. Who's going to lead them now? What now? What do we do now? So they ask Aaron to fashion a golden calf out of the gold that they brought back from Egypt, and they begin to worship it, calling it their Lord. Aaron was quick to oblige, but in the process, they break the second commandment, saying to never create or worship idols. God, though, has seen the reverie as they worship the golden deity. And immediately, the Holy One wants to disown them. God tells Moses, go down at once. Your people, Moses, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. And a little further on, now let me alone. Let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and it may continue, consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. How telling and how interesting it is that God says, your people. In other words, Moses, you can deal with them because they're yours. They're not mine. I'm done with them. So the moment is bleak. Israel has no idea at the base of that mountain that they're being watched so closely. God quotes them word by word. And they have no idea how close God really is, albeit in the hot breath of God's anger. Yet Moses remembers covenant. But it seems that Moses not only wants to hold Israel accountable, Moses also seems to be holding God accountable, reminding God of the covenant that, that God has created. Why should you, why should you, God, 
allow the Egyptians to say that it was evil intent that God brought them out to kill them on the mountain. Echoes of thou shalt not kill, I hear in this word. In other words, God, what will it say about you? If you act no different than the very powers you saw fit to deliver Israel from in the first place. And because of this argument, God changes God's mind. And what we learn is that God is not some emotionalist, passive deity above us, unaffected when we break covenant. God is deeply hurt in our turning aside by our making of idols and by the harm that we do to one another that looks something different than love of God and neighbor itself. We may sometimes sense or feel that God is unaffected by our misbehaviors, but this story shows us something very different. We can be very sure that breaking covenant matters to God. Now, we can read this story. And we can know that the better choice for Israel was to endure this liminal space that they're in. And this between the hard past and the uncertain future. And we can lecture them by saying that they need to trust God. Trust that God will continue to be with you. And we can be critical and say, Israel, there's no quick fixes for your worries. You needed to sit in your discomfort and wait to see that God is faithful. God is with you. Have faith, Israel. But if we're honest, are we always so ready with our own selves to be this way in our uncertainties and our worries? How often in our own hand-wringing and worries do we speak so wisely to our own state of being? And refrain from trusting God and trusting something less than God. Sometimes I think we do that without even knowing it. Today I believe that we, are, we see that we are definitely Israel. We are those who from time to time forget who and whose we are. We are those in the uncertainties of the twisted pine tree of the now who reach out to something less than God to guide us whether we know it or not. Please note, Israel has not turned away from God because of some whim or wild-eyed depravity. They have legitimate worries. Liminal space, it wears on you after a while. They have every reason to feel vulnerable. And these are folks who act in a way because they feel alone. They sense that they are without God and they desperately want God with them. And I think we can all relate to that. I want to offer that idolatry is not necessarily about replacing God by impulse. Maybe it can be, but that's not the story today, right? Today, idolatry, in fact, it's about trying to get closer to God when we feel alone or anxious or abandoned. Idolatry is not, as one person writes, creating something that we can worship in the place of God, but getting closer to God that we worship, but in the wrong way. And when it feels like God is not with us, when we feel as if we have been left alone, we can easily seek God's comfort, and rightfully so, but grab on to the wrong things, hoping it to be God, eventually discovering it's not. We get desperate sometimes. So perhaps, as it was with Moses, well, today's story can draw us to be just as compassionate as we are judgmental towards them and ourselves.
I recently heard the poet Jericho Brown say that people do not like poetry because it makes us ask questions about ourselves we spend our whole lives trying to avoid. And I would propose that such stories like today's poetically function the same way. I do think this story means to ask us where we are allowing our anxieties and worries to grab something less than God, but I also think it means to ask us how might we, in our seasons of uncertainty and feeling alone, how can we learn from those times? How can we learn to have faith in the wilderness of our waitings? Barbara Brown Taylor wrote of James Bremner's essay called Let There Be Light. And he tells the story of being a child. And he was always afraid of the dark. He lived in western Scotland, where he acknowledges there were very few real dangers. And in the small village that he grew up in, there were no street lights or porch lights. And when it got dark at night, it got dark at night. And his chore as a child, every night after dinner, was to take the family's empty milk bottles to the end of the driveway so that the milk person could come by the morning and replenish their milk bottles. But in order to keep his commitment, we need to know that the driveway was about a hundred yards long. And from the house and from the front porch on the dark moonless night especially, that driveway disappeared into a black abyss just a few feet away. So every night he'd walk into that unknown and he would make his way to the end of that 100-yard driveway. And he writes that after all those years, after countless trips down that black and dark driveway, I never stopped being afraid of the dark. Not once. But later in life, he recognized that this chore taught him what it felt like to draw courage out of fear, to find faith in the unknown. Courage, he writes, which is no more than the management of fear, must be practiced. And for this, children, and we all need a widespread, easily obtained, cheap, renewable source of something scary, but not actually dangerous. Darkness, he said, fits the bill. Now, I cannot know if it was God's objective But perhaps God going dark on Israel for 40 days served a similar opportunity for them. Likewise, when it seems God has left us in the darkness of struggles and uncertainties, those liminal spaces I spoke of, maybe we can see them as a season to learn what it means to overcome the anxieties and fears that we know. There's a great spiritual treasure to be found in waiting, one person writes. The practice of cultivating patience. It's a practice that raises faith to profound trust that God is working and moving even when we cannot see where God is going and that God's time is always a good time and the right time. We cannot avoid anxiety and fear and uncertainty. It is part of our life's journey. And feeling such things, let me tell you, is not a lack of faith. We can rest assured that between the brokenness and the wholeness, between the sorrows and the joys, we are never alone. And during this in-between time that we might be in, we will feel uncertainty, frustration, disappointment, and fear. 
Yet may these things never guide us towards seeking something less than God. Today, we are reminded that we are people of lasting covenant. And this covenant reminds us that the best thing that we can do during all times is to love God and neighbor itself. If you are grabbing on to something today that's less than God and it's to make you feel better, to help you cope, or to get you through, please know that you're not alone. If you're tired of working for and waiting for peace and wholeness and justice in this world, please know that your being tired is not a sign that you are faithless. Be sure, friends, to take care of yourselves. Encourage one another. Support one another. Tend to your souls these hard days, but know that these struggles will never have the last word. Only God will have the last word. And even when we can't see it, God is always in tune with us, deeply aware of what's going on with us, among us, and within us. And just as God knew what was taking place at the bottom of that mountain, as Israel worshiped gold and a handmade calf, God's jealous heart still burns today when we break covenant and set, us, set them aside. Even so, God does not seek to destroy. God seeks to redeem and to help. And the good news is like Moses, we have Christ. We have an intercessor bending God's passion towards redemption that will see us through. And may it bend our passions nonetheless. Thanks be to God. Amen.